0: Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And before we get into today's podcast, we want to remind everybody that we have our audiobook slash paperback slash ebook, which is available all over the place. And if you want to get a copy of it, you can go to bit.ly slash 50 Dinosaur Tales or just search for 50 Dinosaur Tales wherever you get your books. This week in our 267th episode, we're wrapping up our Australia road trip with our penultimate stop, (laughs) which was in Melbourne. We didn't do anything dinosaur-related in Adelaide.
1: We did see a museum.
0: Yes, but I guess we didn't do an interview, is what I'm thinking. So for this episode, we have a bunch of dinosaur news, including a new dinosaur. We have a new Australian polar find, to coincide with the end of our Australian road trip. And we have some new dinosaur attractions. We also have our last interview from Australia, which is with Tom Rich and Patricia Vickers-Rich that we did in Melbourne. And of course, we have Dinosaur of the Day, Melanorosaurus. But before we get into all of that, we want to thank some of our patrons. And this week, we'd like to thank Kyle, Brendan Kavanaugh, the Tolbert family, Remy Rodriguez, Rohan, Bradley, Bilal, Avery, Crispy, Albertosaurus, Trev, Ayrton and Everett, Greg, and Jared Copeland. And Jared just joined, so thank you very much.
1: Yeah, thank you so much. I mean, as always, we're always very grateful to our dinosaur enthusiast community, and and we really enjoy chatting with everyone through our Patreon and our Discord. And if you're interested in joining this growing community of awesome people and checking out our rewards, then go to our page at patreoncom Dino. Yeah,
0: as we said last week, we launched our ARC server, which is booming. We got some. New structures popping up <laughs> and lots of tamed dinosaurs. So if you play that game, definitely join us there. But without further ado, we're gonna jump into the news section. So as always, we like to kick off with a new dinosaur when we can. And this one is really cool. There's a really good write-up in Scientific Reports where Oliver Rauhut and Diego Paul wrote their official paper. There's also a good write-up in La Nacion, which is like the local paper, I think in Argentina. It was all in Spanish, I had to translate it. <laughs> but there's some cool stuff in there that wasn't in the official paper. So this is actually a new dinosaur from December. As I mentioned last week, there's like a handful from last year that we didn't get around to yet. So I'm still playing catch up. And Diego Pohl was actually the second author on the Patagotitan paper, so if you're familiar with that awesome dinosaur, if you've been to the am and recently and see their quote-unquote titanosaur, or if it's been renamed to the official name of Patagotitan, then you're familiar with some of his work in Argentina. And the pair also together named Pandora Venator in 2017, which is another theropod. It's about 150 million years old and was way less complete than this new dinosaur, the new dinosaur is an allosauroid, and it's named Asphaltovenator. It's about 20 million years earlier, still in the Jurassic, so it's about 170 million years old. And its full name is Asphaltovenator Vialidari. Asphaltovenator comes from Canyadon Asphalto Formation plus Venator for Hunter. And Vialidari is for, quote, the Administración De Vialidad Provincial of Chubut and the Dirección Nacional de Vialidad for their aid to paleontological expeditions. So, two different things named Vialidad (laughs) that helped them get the work done. It was originally found in 2002, and the province actually made a mile-long road to the bones so they could be extracted in 2007, which I think is partly why they named the species after them.
1: That makes sense. That's really helpful.
0: (laughs) Yes. I think they said it was like completely impossible to get to. And there, they don't have a lot of helicopters usually to work with, so they had like a crane come out to lift up this huge block, and then they also just loaded it on the back of a truck. So without a road there, it's pretty hard to get a crane and a truck in. They took it out as a single block. It was almost Zool-sized, just a huge, massive block filled up the whole bed of a truck. And it took five years until 2012 to prep out the really hard, troublesome rock. (laughs) And then a few more years they spent comparing it to other theropods, then a couple years to publish, and then here we are in 2019, 2020, when we finally get to learn about it. So after all that work, they ended up with an almost entirely complete head, meaning both the skull and jaws and, you know, full of teeth, of course. They also had lots of neck and back vertebrae, basically all the way up until right as it was getting to the hips. I think one of the vertebrae was fused probably to the sacrum, which is where the hips are. And then there isn't really anything farther back on the dinosaur than that. But In front of that, they did have lots of ribs, they have a complete arm and hand, they have pieces of the leg and foot, and then just one little tiny bit of the hips, which is the pubic boot, which is kind of in the front part of the hips. So a pretty excellent find. I mean, getting a full skull is always really awesome because it usually has a lot of diagnostic features, and that it's 170 million years old and we don't have a lot of stuff from that age makes it even cooler. teeth especially are really interesting. From a distance, they look a lot like a typical curved pointy theropod tooth. But when you look at them really closely, especially the front or premaxillary teeth look really unique. So their serrations specifically have really large serrations on the back of the teeth, but the front of the teeth have much smaller serrations, which usually they're pretty symmetric on the tooth. So it's pretty unique that they're asymmetric serrations. Obviously, the way it was cutting meant that one side of the tooth needed larger serrations than the other. The other obvious difference from Allosaurus is in its hands. Its third finger, basically the pinky finger equivalent, they're sort of like The Simpsons characters, (laughs) their number of fingers, they're missing a finger, but their their equivalent to the pinky is quite a bit skinnier and shorter than an Allosaurus. But otherwise, it's generally pretty Allosaurus-like, including the big brow ridges that it has that are almost like horns in some paleo art. Even though they look a lot smaller, they're kind of in the same place and sort of general orientation above the eyes. Like I said, it's somewhere around 170 million years old, Putting it roughly 15 million years older than Allosaurus, or at least the oldest ones that you'd find in the Morrison formation, since those are about 155 million years old. And they call it, quote, the most complete skeleton known from early tetanuran history, which probably represents the oldest known representative of one of the main lineages, the Allosauroidea, end quote. So, obviously, a very important early Allosauroid, and the fact that it has this full skull to go along with it, which changes quite a bit in these early theropods, is really important. Diego Pohl also said that it's the largest predator of that time in the region, so likely an apex predator.
1: Those are always fun.
0: Yeah, which is basically what we thought in the Morris information that Allosaurus was probably an apex Mm -hmm. predator, but this is just the southern American version of it. It's estimated to be about 8 meters or about 26 feet long, And that also puts it about the same size as an average allosaurus, but we don't have any of its tail. So that length estimate is pretty approximate. You just don't know how many vertebrae there would have been in the tail. So you could easily add or subtract a meter (laughs) depending on how long its tail was. They didn't mention its age or histology. So it could have still been growing potentially maybe, or maybe it was a fully grown adult. I don't know. They didn't say. So maybe, you know, It would have been 10 meters long when it was a full adult. The sauropod patagosaurus is from the same formation, and patagosaurus is on display at the Bernardino Rivadavia Natural Sciences Argentine Museum in Buenos Aires, which is about 50 feet long, so really not all that big for a sauropod, but probably kind of big for asphaltovenator to try to eat. (laughs) But maybe, I don't know, it could have gone after it as an adult if it was desperate or something
1: could have scavenged.
0: Yeah, definitely. And it probably could have eaten living hatchlings and juveniles too, because they should be easy pickings by comparison. They also found a sauropod tibia, which was essentially in its grasp, (laughs) the way it fossilized, Mm. but it's sort of like in between its arms and its ribs. So it's unclear, like if it was trying to eat it or what was happening, there's a slight chance that it choked on it, trying to swallow it. More likely that it was just chewing on it though and died near it, or even some other meat eater was chewing on it and it happened to die next to it and get fossilized together.
1: Yeah, that's an interesting way to die.
0: Yeah, hugging your food. Yeah, maybe
1: <laughs> mid chew.
0: Yeah, it's a pretty cool dinosaur though. Uh, the idea that there was this sort of similar ecosystem going on thousands of miles apart in very different places. But, you know, you still had allosauroids, basically, and sauropods, pretty similar to the Morrison formation, but way down south in Argentina. Hopefully they'll put it on display, too, since they have a museum that's been showing other stuff. Like, they also have Austroraptor in there, which is only about a 10-year-old find.
1: In other news, thanks to David, who shared this one with us via Facebook— So Coffs Harbor Butterfly House in New South Wales, Australia, has opened their dinosaur forest, and that's their butterfly house, and it's got dinosaurs everywhere. The exhibit is called Exiting Extinction, and they have dinosaur shows at 11 a.m. and 1 p.m. You can take photos with Trixie the Triceratops, and it looks like it's open through the school holidays, which I'm not sure how long those lasted, so possible that it is not going on anymore, but it (laughs) sounds really cool. Yeah, that's cool. In Reno, Nevada in the U.S., you can go to Jurassic Empire, a dinosaur event that has more than 50 animatronic dinosaurs at the Reno Sparks Livestock Event Center, and that's on January 11th and 12th this weekend. So we're telling you this just in time (laughs) if you're in the area. And last, in Cardiff, Wales, you can have a sleepover with Dippy the Diplodocus while he's visiting on Saturday, January 25th, so a little bit more of a heads up there. There's going to be workshops, hatching dinosaur eggs, and a film in the Grand Theater as well as snacks, drinks, and breakfast. And then the next morning, if you're there, you can also see the Evolution of Whales gallery.
0: Whales, W-A-L-E-S. Right. Not <laughs> W-H-A-L-E-S.
1: <laughs> oh, Good point. Good point for this audience. (laughs)
0: Yes, (laughs) because it's in Wales. Yes. But not in a whale. (laughs) (laughs) I've seen whale evolution exhibits that are really cool, like we saw the one in Italy where they had a ton of whales lined up. That was awesome.
1: Yeah, that's true. So, yes, can't be too careful about these things.
0: And then I have one more news item. Now that we're getting closer to the interview, which features Australia, I figured I'd save this one for last. We have some new polar dinosaur feathers from Australia, and two of the authors on it are the people we will be interviewing, but the lead author is Martin Kudrat, and then there's other co-authors as well. It was written in Gondwana Research, and the feathers that they're talking about were found southeast of Melbourne, where most of the dinosaur discoveries, at least the ones in Victoria, are found. And at the time that these feathered dinosaurs were around in the early Cretaceous, it was at about 70 degrees south, putting it well within the Antarctic circle and officially polar, in quotes, (laughs) because, you know, Antarctic or Arctic makes it polar. They found 10 feathers total, including everything from down-like body feathers to flight feathers, or at least flight-ish feathers because they're asymmetric And that's kind of the key to flight, is having these asymmetric feathers so that the air going over the top gives you the Bernoulli effect. Anyway, (laughs) the range of these feathers is from 10 to 30 millimeters long, basically meaning that they're all under about an inch. So these aren't massive feathers coming from big dinosaurs. These are small insulation feathers, or maybe little feathers that might have helped with flying on a small bird kind of thing. That's what we're looking at. They also used some microscopes to check out how many melanosomes or other characteristics they could find, and they found what looked like eumelanosomes, or the black-colored melanosomes, and they appear pretty even across the feathers, so maybe they were evenly colored, but we're looking at individual feathers. We're not really looking at a full-feathered dinosaur, so it's a little bit less useful for figuring out the kind of patterning on the bird itself, or dinosaur, I should say. They gave some interesting reasons, though, for it having dark-colored feathers. They gave the usual, you know, maybe it was used for signaling, you know, species recognition, or maybe for blending into the environment. But an interesting one we don't usually think about is maybe they use them to absorb more light and therefore heat in the cold Antarctic environment that they lived in. If you're interested in seeing these feathers, some of them are on display In the 600 million years exhibition at the Melbourne Museum, and Sabrina put together a video from the Melbourne Museum, and it includes a little bit of those, although we didn't probably zoom in enough (laughs) that you can see the feathers themselves, but they're near the animatronic Quantasaurus and the Mutaburosaurus, if you've been to that museum.
1: And if you haven't, and you're near the Melbourne area, we definitely recommend it. There's a lot to see there.
0: Yes, and that exhibit specifically the 600 million years one is probably the easiest thing to miss when you go into the dinosaur hall you have to turn right and kind of go behind it <laughs>
1: right it took us a couple tries
0: we, the only reason we found it was cuz we knew it was there <laughs> they were like make sure you don't miss the holotypes and we went through a couple times before we finally found it we saw the little mudasaurus head sticking up way in the background and then we noticed where to go
1: <laughs> yeah well there's a few fun corners to yeah. go in that museum
0: yeah, when we were there, they also had an exhibit on like the gut microbiome that was really fun. Not dinosaur-related, but really enjoyable nonetheless.
1: <laughs> yeah. That was a temporary one, though. I don't know if that's still around. It might not be, yeah. But yeah, really nice museum. And the gift shop was really great, too.
0: And before we get into our interview, where we talk a lot more about Australian dinosaurs, if you're interested in hearing more about dinosaurs, including Diluvacursor, who made it to the cover page of our 50 dinosaur tales book.
1: Easy breezy beautiful cover dinosaur.
0: <laughs> sure. <laughs> you can find a cursor by getting a copy of 50 dinosaur tales. There are also a lot of other dinosaurs in the mix, not a ton of Australian ones because Australia unfortunately doesn't have as good of a paleontological record yet as the rest of the world, well, at least North America.
1: They've been churning it out lately, so the next few years, I expect it to be much more robust.
0: Yes. But if you want to read about Diluvicursor, Sabrina wrote a really cool story about how Diluvicursor may have ended up getting fossilized in a pretty fantastical way. It's a, one of my favorite stories from the book. <laughs> so if you're interested in reading that story or hearing Sabrina read it to you, you could get the audiobook version or get any other version by going to bit.ly slash 50 dinosaur tales. That's the number 50 and then tales as in stories, not tales as in the thing that Diluvicursor is named after. <laughs> or you can search for 50 dinosaur tales wherever you get your books. And now we're going to go on to our interview with Tom and Pat. We're joined today by Tom Rich, who's at the Museums Victoria in Melbourne and an affiliate at Monash University and Swinburne University of Technology, also in Melbourne, and Pat Vickers-Rich, who's also at the Monash University and Swinburne University of Technology.
1: Yep. And they've been kind enough to invite us to their homes and give us tea and cookies.
0: (laughs) (laughs) We've got to lure you here somehow. (laughs) We really appreciate it. Yeah. (laughs) And we do too.
1: (laughs) To
2: have
0: your interest. So I, I kind of want to start at the beginning, if that's okay, because you guys have been working in this area for such a long time. And I know you've discovered so many dinosaurs, but what was the early process like when you were working in the area?
3: Well, we began by, I got a job in 1974. And initially what we were trying to do was to find older mammals than ones that have been found, because it was really fossil mammals that got me interested. And at the time only the last 10% of mammalian history was documented well on this continent for the terrestrial mammals. Hmm. So I was interested in the first 90%. So what we did was we went to the area where our predecessor had had success up in northern South Australia because he had found progressively older sites there. And I thought, well, we'll keep going back. So we spent about the first five years trying to figure out where we're going to work. Well, little did we know that in our backyard, within 200 kilometers where we're sitting here in Eastern Melbourne, was where we should have started, but we had to find that out. <laughs> and um, so finally, what happened was that uh, two um, students went to the site where one dinosaur bone had been found in 1903, and then nothing more for the next 75 years, <laughs> 1978. And they returned to the site, and within about five minutes, one of them found a single block of rock with one bone in it. So this was the second one, and they had the, the then the visual set of what they were looking for, because one of the problems with trying to find fossils, where eventually we found a lot of them, was that they were in an unexpected occurrence. People just weren't used to looking, including us, looking for bones preserved in just this way. Hmm. The bones are basically seen as typically cross-sections, Rather than seeing something that looks like a bone, you just see a random cross-section, typically black or dark brown. And you have to look at the uh, structure of them, the microstructure, to detect them as bone. Because the problem is for every one of those bones, there's 10,000 pieces of coal that look just like them. Wow! So it takes a while to get the right mindset to know what you're looking for. Once we had that, we looked at the geological map of the state and realized that along the coast – for about 150 kilometers east and west of Melbourne, was the right kind of rock. And so we started prospecting that systematically. And eventually we found a number of fossil sites that we then exploited. But I'm talking now, I'm compressing this story into (laughs) about 10 years. And finally, in uh, 1984, we had a test dig at a locality that became known as Dinosaur Cove. And there we... On the first dig, I had 70 volunteers, aged 7 to 77, who were eager to find dinosaurs. And we managed to dig an area underground about the size of two telephone booths. And out of it came 80 bones. And I realized we could do it. But it meant we were going to have to tunnel. I didn't want to learn about tunneling, but I had to. And so we did. And so we actually drove tunnels and we started finding a regular supply of dinosaurs. So what was made these dinosaurs particularly interesting, because they were the, the virtually the only ones known from southeastern Australia, but they were also polar. So that added another component of interest to them. So we kept digging them, hoping we'd find mammals and birds along with them. Eventually we did, but very few. So it mainly was dinosaurs that drove the whole project. And in doing that, we attracted a lot of volunteers and volunteers uh, over the past 40 years, about 700 people have helped us out. Wow. And there's, there's a group of them that keep coming back every year, and they are critical in making the whole thing happen. And two of them went out and they found the second site that we've worked. We spent 20 years at a second site, which <laughs> is almost 200 kilometers east of Dinosaur Cove. And from there is actually where we got most of the mammals, which were what I was really interested in in the first place. But along the way, we've found some more dinosaurs. We've, we've named about five dinosaurs from southeastern Australia. And probably they'll they'll be valid. They, we probably won't have a case of the apatosaurus brontosaurus uh, problem <laughs> that you might be aware of. Because simply, we are found the first ones. And um, we we're trying you know to extend our knowledge of them. Because most of these are found from just single bones or teeth. And they're not whole skeletons for the most part. So we know just enough about them to put names on them that are probably valid. But we know most of what they look like because we can tie them into skeletons known on other continents. Mm. And that's critical because if, if our dinosaurs were as uniquely Australian as the current mammals are, the koalas, lombats, and kangaroos, we'd have almost no idea what they look like mm. because we just <laughs> have bits and pieces. But because we can slot them in to... Dinosaurs known elsewhere, we got a pretty good idea. And in a and few cases where we've actually found a partial skeleton, we haven't been surprised by finding, oh, it's quite different <laughs> from what we would have expected.
0: And speaking of dinosaurs or animals that you've named, you've named two after your kids, right?
3: Yes. Uh, what happened was that Pat was in China in 1979. And I was prospecting the coast looking for fossils. And we, uh, she was being taken care of by a lady who worked with us during the day. And then the night I'd come home, and she was a pretty cluey two-and-a-half-year-old. And um, she realized that Daddy was looking for fossils, uh, dinosaurs, <laughs> and that she had a book called My Little Dinosaur. It was about a little boy who finds a living dinosaur and takes it home for a pet. And so putting two and two together with the impeccable logic of a a two-and-a-half-year-old, she says, why can't I have one? She says, Daddy, can I have a dinosaur? And I said, well, actually, I can't really get you a living one. But if I ever find find one that's new, I'll name it for you. She had to wait 10 years, but she got it. (laughs) And that's uh, the basis of the name Leonisora. (laughs) And then she had a brother.
2: You you didn't tell the finished story. When you did name it after, her. she said, I wanted a live one. (laughs) (laughs) As a joke.
3: (laughs) Anyway, uh, her brother had to have one too. So we fortunately found another one that was renamed for him, Tomimus, which at the time we named it, we thought it was an ornithomimosaur. But then um, more material of it turned up, and it turns out to be some sort of a relationship to a tyrannosauroid. Hmm. So she called up, uh, her son called our our daughter and said, now I can eat you because I've got teeth.
2: (laughs) (laughs) But a little bit more to that story is that it's it's the name is shared between Tim and his uh, godless father <laughs> uh Tim Flannery who was the one that started finding along with his cousin John Long started finding the bones
3: along that coast of the three sites major sites we have worked it was the most uh, daunting of the three I mean it, I never would have worked Dinosaur Cove if we'd known of the other two mm-hmm. but at the time when we started, Dinosaur Cove, that was the only place we could possibly work. So that's where we started. Gotcha. But it led to the other sites.
0: Where, is one of the other sites the Eric the Eric Red? Eric the Red
3: West, yeah. What's that's the like... name behind that story? Okay. <laughs> the story uh, by the name. There was a, yeah. a sailing ship called Eric the Red, which left New York in 1880, bringing um, a gear for an international exhibition here in Melbourne. And something like 80 days out, it was going around Cape Otway. And it got a little bit too close, and it crashed into the rocks. And so the anchor of Eric the Red West was recovered and is actually on the beach about 175 meters east of Eric the Red West. And the reason we call it Eric the Red West is because there's a site called Eric the Red right at the anchor. So what happened was in 2005, a partial skeleton was found at what what became Eric the Red West. I'm hoping we'll find more of it because the problem with that skeleton is it's a postcranial. Uh, it's a, it's the basis for the name Dilubi cursor. Mm-hmm. but we can't relate it to the other dinosaurs that we found because all the other ones have been named on the basis of dentitions. So what we kept hoping was, oh, you found this partial skeleton. There must be another one. Well, we've spent 12 seasons there and we haven't found another partial skeleton. Um, we're going to have a dig in early November. For just five days because um, what happened was at the penultimate day of the last dig there in 2017, we found a clump of rock about, uh, let's see, we're talking American, okay, about a foot <laughs> across, which had 15 bones in it of both groups of dinosaurs and a turtle. Wow! And I've never seen a concentration like that in 40 years on the yeah. coast of Victoria. So we're going to go back and see if that's the beginning of a rich concentration there. Now, if it is, possibly we might come up with a partial skeleton of another dinosaur, maybe of Diluvia cursor, mm-hmm. and find out if diluvicursor maybe is actually another name for atlas copcasaurus because teeth of atlas copcasaurus are abundant at that site. Mm. And there's other ornithopods at that site. So we, it could be that's what it is. So it could be that diluvicursor is a junior synonym of atlas copcasaurus, but we can't tell because we're comparing apples and oranges. We're comparing a dentition to a postcranial skeleton. We just right. don't know.
0: Well, the good news is that Laelinosaur and Timimus are not threatened. no. no, no <laughs> to be no. junior citizens. No, they're, uh,
3: you know, those two are pretty distinct, as well as Quantosaurus, the other ornithopod. They're, they're, they're distinct from each other. There's, there's no doubt about that. Whether they have any relationship to Delivio Cursor or even Gallimimusaurus, we're not sure because of, they're not comparable. And this is uh, to find to that we got to find more material. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. One of the Interesting things is we like we don't have any sauropods, which are so common, right up in central right. Australia. Mm-hmm. They just didn't get down here. Now, that may be a fact that the difference in paleo latitude. We were inside the Antarctic Circle. Exactly how far we're not sure, but we were definitely inside the Antarctic Circle. Whereas central Queensland was well into what passed then for the temperate zone. And and looking in the northern hemisphere, the sauropods don't get that high. Hmm. As I mean, you don't get them in Alaska, for yeah. example even though you're, you've got contemporaneous ones at lower latitude. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that could be the whole answer. A just didn't really like to get it where it was nippy. <laughs> Who would, really? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. They, they had no Ugg boots. Yeah. <laughs> but, yes, well, I mean.
2: I put out a series of uh, paintings that Peter Trussler has done of the various uh, uh, basal ornithropods that you've got. Mm-hmm. So just to give you an idea, and the original painting is right there on the wall. Oh, oh wow. wow. That's one of the first ones that he ever did for us, although he did some mammals, but that's, I think that's the first dinosaur he ever did.
3: Oh, it is. It's the first one. Yeah. And the reason it poses the corpse was he didn't know how to pose it mm-hmm. initially, so he thought the easiest thing to do is just have it lying down dead, so mm-hmm. that's the way he painted it. That's why he chose that scene.
2: But, and he chose it in the way that it, the way it was found in the... Yeah, it was, yeah as a it's a reconstruction of
3: how the holotype might have appeared in the process of becoming a fossil. I mean, it's at the edge of a billabong, About five meters wide, and he was very clever in trying to show the width of it by you see a reflection of the trees on the other side. Mm -hmm. And yet, because if he tried to just show the whole width of the pillow, the dinosaur would have just been a (laughs) bit. Yeah. But if you get up close and personal with it, you'll find out that
2: there's all kinds of interesting things in it. Like, for instance, there's a lungfish tooth, the detail, the grain size of the sand is exactly. The way it is, and we have indications that there was ice, and so he's done ice on the—and he's done it—I can't remember what time of the day and what time of the year, but he did it for a particular autumn.
3: autumn but a done partic- for autumn, and, and he, he had a problem with the ice because he wasn't familiar with it, so he froze— water in his wife's freezer. <laughs> See oh, what it his was freezer like, too. Yeah. <laughs> well, he he always made sure he was mentioning it was Gail's. It was right? Gail's <laughs> freezer. <laughs> yes, she was very tolerant. You'd have to be. So so he uh he, just to know it, because he wasn't familiar with it. No, that's, that's right. And, uh, but it was also meant to be at, at
2: in autumn, but also at one time, particular time of the day. So he's, you know, the the reflection, etc., mm. is that mm. he takes those things into account when he yes. makes a painting. That's really? an amazing painting. Yeah, I, yeah, I've amazing seen
0: the image idea. before, and I didn't realize that it was a painting.
3: No, no. Yeah, one of the images awesome. has been working with Peter yeah, Tressler, the artist. Mm-hmm. Totally. Because we went out to find, I went out to find an artist because I had a composite collection of a mammal called diprotodon, the largest marsupial that ever lived. And I needed somebody to basically put it together <laughs> um, and to do a composite because we're talking 1980. And so we, how do you find an artist? So we went to an art show, logical place. <laughs> and I walked in and I saw this one painting of this bird that was about to fly off the canvas. I thought, that's the person I want. <laughs> and so that began the association we've had with him now for 40 years. Awesome. And, uh, wow. It's been it's been great. We've actually published a book called The Artist and the Scientist about how we work together. Because there are books about paleo art, but this is a book that basically the way it's designed is that the first half of each episode there's about nine episodes discussed nine projects, In the first half Pat I set the scientific basis of what's done, and then he tells how he did it. So it, it complements each other, and uh, so we. We're very glad we we're able to produce that book through uh, Cambridge University Press. Oh, you that's can get a hefty a copy book. Now, yeah. <laughs> wow.
0: <laughs> As opposed to get all the paleo art in it, it's got to be a large book.
3: <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah.
0: Speaking of collaborations, do you guys ever work together in the field or otherwise? Oh yeah. Oh
2: yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. All of this is
0: joint. Awesome. Yeah. Do you have a favorite story of working together or no, favorite there's too time? Many. <laughs>
2: Look, we've been married for 53 years and we're still working
1: together. That's the story. (laughs) Well, you've got one currently, the DinoQuest. Yeah, DinoQuest
2: is the exhibition that we have and and we're traveling it. And it really is a showcase of the polar dinosaurs and how they, you know, you you ask your question, these dinosaurs are living in these extreme conditions. Why did they go extinct? What is, what's the story? and we we've, we've that exhibition is the most interesting i think i've ever worked on because what it does it's interactive but it's scientifically correct and it brings kids and the, their parents as well and their grandparents into it and turns them into scientists. They get a little card and it's got some infra, a, a, an unknown bone on it and they have to go through the exhibition and they get more and more data as they go through it. And they also see docos of um, people digging up the bones and people being interviewed. They go into Dinosaur Cove and they get to explode things. <laughs> they get to use a jackhammer. <laughs> <laughs> and then we've got animatronics in it that Peter's Peter's art was used and he was the advisor for making the animatronics of five of the characters in this story. Plus, well, six of them because Australovenator jumps out of the bushes at you and growls. (laughs) Um, And coming into the exhibition, it's historically accurate. You come into a tent, and it's the tent of Ferguson that Tom was telling you about who discovered the first bone, the first Mm -hmm. polar dinosaur bone in Australia in 1903. You come into his tent, that's where you get your card. But you also get the story behind the first discovery of a dinosaur ever in Australia So the history is right, then you go into this time tunnel, you go back in, and you also have some of the Precambrian because what it does is it puts dinosaurs in their place. You have to understand where dinosaurs fit in the the scheme of things. And then after you go through that little thing, and David Attenborough is there telling you about first life, life, etc., you go around the corner and you come into a dig site, then you go into another area which has got a prep lab, and the kids actually are given a rock and they're sitting there and they get to actually prepare the rock with wow. people who are sitting there explaining to them what they're doing then you go into Peter's art gal- art studio and you get to actually do some art and then you see the we've got a skeleton of a giant lizard called megalania that Tom was responsible for putting together years ago and Peter's art is then oh it's it's the real it's the skeleton a cast of it and then Peter's art the, puts the muscles on it right in front of you. And then wow. Peter's art puts the skin on it. And Peter is blah blah blah, 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 He's telling you about it as all of this is going on. So then you go around the corner and you see a whole bunch of casts of the dinosaurs that were found and the mammals and all that. And then you go through another little corner and you come into Lee Ellen's bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> and Lee Ellen's bedroom is when she was about, you know, the age that he was telling you about. And there's a book that you you can turn this. And Lee Ellen is explaining to everybody as animated uh, a person about how her dinosaur was discovered and how it was named and blah, blah, blah. And all through the exhibition, there's two characters that are. Guides. They're guides, but they are they are uh, just in space. One of them is T Rex, and the other one is Prof V. And he is T Rex, and I'm Prof V. <laughs> and then you come into the final thing. You've ha- you've got your card. You put your card down on a on a viewer, and it pops up a printout of your dinosaur, the thing that you've been able to identify. Then you take that into this this area where you've got some more people. Blah blah blah. And you color it in and you put it under another scanner and it comes up on the screen and runs around.
0: Oh, yeah.
2: And then as you go out, there's some other activities and you get a certificate as you leave. And and also there's some questions on this certificate. So now you've learned about the past. Let's look at the future. What do you think after having understood why things went extinct and da-da-da-da-da and what the causes were? What do you think you can do to keep humans from going extinct? And it basically gives a lot of ideas about, you know, turn off the lights, don't use so much water. doesn't say anything about population but alludes to maybe two kids is a good idea. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's there's a lot of stuff in this that, one, uh, makes you act as if you're a scientist mm-hmm. and, and gives you the feeling that maybe you are able to make decisions about things, um and then as you go out you know, there's playful things and and such but it's it's about one scientific accuracy two getting people to have the confidence that they can make decisions about things and then doing something about it <laughs> which i really i really like and we worked with the Singapore Science Centre we worked with a group called DigiMagic and another one called Design Format and Digimagic did all of the, uh, you know, all of the digital stuff that is part of it. Design format designed a lot of the the um, furniture, etc., in it. Mm. And it was a, it's it's a really good interactive thing that the best one I've ever worked on. And they would have put all of those people. Our exhibition, our material is worth probably about six or seven hundred thousand dollars. And Tom and I have accumulated that over. You know, a long time instead of owning a house. I mean, we're in, we've rented this house for 21 years, and mm. we don't own a house or anything. But we've used our funds to put all this together. But these other people would have put in probably 1.5 to 2 million dollars into making this exhibition what it is. Wow! And that's really why I'd like to travel it because it 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 generates funding yeah. for more research, and it also rewards those people who have. The, their heart and soul into making this as accurate as. Ex- it's not just a dinosaur exhibition where you go in and the dinosaurs are roaring they're roaring all right they're yeah. making noise <laughs> but they're you know what has what is in it has been well thought through mm-hmm. it's got scientific basis yeah so we'll blah blah
1: blah <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome yeah so what's next for dino quest
2: DinoQuest is in storage at the moment, and we're trying to. We've been working on a venue in uh, sing, in uh, Shanghai, mm-hmm. which I hope we get. Um, but we we really would like to see it travel for the next five years, and so it's a matter of of finding venues. And it would be great if it could travel to all the continents, rather than just. Uh, you know, just standing yeah, in Southeast Asia. <laughs> yeah, we could take it to Antarctica. They're going to do just fine at McMurdo.
3: <laughs> right, I'm sure they'd have a good roll-up.
2: A <laughs> <laughs> lot of penguins, <laughs> or maybe the odd seal. But
3: <laughs>
0: well, we did see penguins in Melbourne yesterday. Yeah. Yeah. Did you go
2: down to? We did. Oh, I'm oh. glad you got there.
0: Yeah, yes. that was awesome. really good.
1: That's that was pretty, so that's great. Fantastic. And then there were the, the um, I think they are volunteers that are there, and mm-hmm. they could shine a light and mm-hmm. kind of tell you about what they're seeing. And, yeah, it was amazing. Oh, no, that's good.
2: <laughs> I wish you had time to go to our dig in November. <laughs> <laughs>
1: it would be really good. That would be cool. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> are there any other projects you'd want to talk about?
2: One of the projects that I, that I haven't talked about is Prime Psi. So in 1993, I set up an institution called Prime Psi, which mm-hmm. was basically for scientists to get in direct contact with kids. Mm. And to have – get in contact with the teachers, get in contact – have some effect on the curriculum, etc. And that is now based at uh, Swinburne. Mm. And we we have programs going on all over the world as well as as here in – Uh, Victoria and Australia. We bring in all the money other than there's a couple of salaries that we get a little bit of help with from Swinburne. And we've got space that's provided by Swinburne. And we're continuing to do that. I mean, it started out and I built a building that was worth 5.2 million. We had that for some time at uh, one of the universities. Uh, We got kicked out of that building in 2012. And it's now being used by the Sustainability Institute and uh, Swinburne took us on, which is fantastic, because, we, as I say, we we bring in close to half a million dollars a year to support the programs, and we still get scientists in contact with teachers, but emphasizing primarily primary kids, because high school kids get a lot of input. Primary kids don't get so much of that. Mm -hmm. And we have programs, as I said, we have them all over Australia, but we also have them in Kenya, we have them in Namibia, we have them in Afghanistan, we have them in... Uh, is not Israel? They've they've got their good programs there. We've got them in Iran. We've got them in Saudi Arabia. We've got them wow. in all kinds of places, and we <laughs> have just that's just been something that the scientists that are involved along with the people who are coordinating all this have put together and it's going strong so oh, that's amazing yeah no it is and it's it the point i would make is it is really important to put time into primary kids and their teachers and the curriculum because if you don't get them continuing with their native curiosity by the time they get into those period called the you know teenage years <laughs> <laughs> things may change a little bit and and then they you know then they're faced you you lose a lot of kids that would have gone on and at least have some idea what science is about even if they don't go on in science after high school they at least have a have it in their brain that they can make decisions about what the bloody politicians are saying, excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, make reasonable decisions on their own rather than depending upon Wikipedia or somebody else who often has good opinions. But you want people, individuals, making their own decisions about things. If you inspire that in young kids, don't make them feel like, you know, their opinion is not worthwhile and encourage that. I think it's it's worth, it's worth worth the fight. That's awesome. It really is. Mm-hmm. So prime size, something that I hope will continue long after I'm gone. Cool.
1: Yeah. It sounds well. It's all over the world already. So. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it's self-supporting.
2: I mean, it really is. We manage oh. somehow. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's great.
1: Yeah. For our listeners, and um, if they wanted to learn more about you and your work or your projects that you're happening or mm-hmm. ongoing, where would the best place be for them to go? Probably
2: to us, but also Prime PrimeSci is a good connection for teachers and for students, not only primary students, but high school students as well. Mm-hmm. Tom's Museum would be another another place. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Science Center in Singapore, beautiful place to get in touch with and, and get into their programs, quite frankly. Awesome. So those are those are contacts. Wonderful.
1: Yeah. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us this
2: well, afternoon. Thanks for asking the questions and coming out and seeing us.
0: Thanks again, Tom and Pat, for the awesome interview and also for the gifts. They gave us some books and (laughs) lots of
1: (laughs) wonderful materials. Yeah,
0: it was really cool. And after we spoke to Tom and Pat, we made it over to the Melbourne Museum and got to look in the collections and see all sorts of amazing stuff, some of which has already been published on since (laughs) we've been there.
1: And a lot of it was stuff that they had told us about that they had found.
0: Yeah, like the really cool new Megaraptorid which is Australovenator-like, and we also saw one of the feathers (laughs) that ended up getting published here. And there was also a little microscopic flea, not microscopic, fossilized flea, which is a little tiny thing. It's really cool. They have quite a collection, and it's growing all the time there. Mm -hmm. And if you want to see the Dinosaur Dreaming Project, Tom sent us a PDF of it, which will be in our show notes on our website, so you can go to our website and you can get a copy of that there. We'll also have a link to some of the other things we talked about, including the video of the Melbourne Museum. So if you're interested in any of that, then head over to our longer show notes, <laughs> which are on inodino.com.
1: And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Melanorosaurus, which was a request from Dinosaur4602. So thanks. Melanorosaurus was a sauropodomorph that lived in the late Triassic in what is now South Africa in the Elliot Formation. It was probably herbivorous. It had four teeth on each side of the premaxilla and 19 teeth on each side of its maxilla. It was quadrupedal and it had sturdy limbs like a sauropod and a large body. It was estimated to be about 26 feet or 8 meters long and weigh 1.3 tons.
0: Not too big for a sauropod, but I guess we're in the Triassic. And it's a sauropodomorph. Oh, true.
1: <laughs> Melanorosaurus was probably a facultative biped, and that means that it could walk or run on two legs, but normally it used four. So we're saying it was mostly quadrupedal. It had a somewhat pointed snout and a triangular skull. The type species is Melanorosaurus red eye, and it was found on the north slope of the Thabanyama Black Mountain in Eastern Cape and Free State provinces in South Africa. The genus name means Black Mountain Lizard. And it was described in 1924 by Sidney Houghton. There used to be a second species, Melanorosaurus stabensis, named in 1993 by Francois Xavier Goff, based on a femur found in the Elliott Formation of Lesotho in, in 1959. But in 2016, a study found that the femur and other bones were actually a new type of dinosaur, Miroctenostabinensis. There's also a synonym for Melanorosaurus, Rokosaurus tetrascralis. That was named in 1984 by Van Heerden and others, but now that's considered to be a nomum nudum. There's not too much information on it. In 1924, Houghton wrote that, quote, the bones consist of a tibia, a fibula, part of the pelvis, some vertebrae, and metatarsals, together with a femur lying partly embedded in the overlying sandstone and the proximal half of a humerus found weathered down the slope. They are in the collection of the South African Museum, end quote. In 1979, Van Heerden analyzed this type material and assigned most of it to Euskelosaurus, except for a sacral tibian and femur. In 1997, Van Heerden and Pierre Galton referred another specimen to Melanorosaurus redi based on the femurs being similar. In 2005, Galton, Van Heerden, and Yates said that many additional bones, mostly of Pladiosaurus, were assigned to Melanorosaurus since 1924. They also referred a new specimen to Melanorosaurus redi and said the dinosaur was a quote. Sauriptomorpha insertis sedis, pending further analysis of the holotype and of all the referred specimens. End quote. And that basically means they don't know where it fits in the family tree. In 2007, Yates revised the diagnosis of some of the specimens, but not the type specimens. There were two, and this is known as the syn type. Yates also described a referred skull. So there's some uncertainty around Melanorosaurus now, since the syn-type specimens haven't been studied in a while, and they should be re-examined to identify diagnostic unique features. And the way scientists think of Melanorosaurus now is based on the referred specimens. Hmm. Yeah, but some of the referred specimens are indirectly referred. They're referred based on a referred specimen. <laughs> oh my god. <sighs> so it seems that Melanorosaurus in general needs to be re-examined. The syn-type, both specimens are housed in Cape Town, and the referred specimens are stored at the National Museum of Bloemfontein in South Africa.
0: At least they're all in South Africa. Yeah, makes them a little easier to study.
1: That's true, but there's many things to study.
0: <laughs> and our fun fact of the day is that Benjamin Kier, Tom Rich, and Patricia Vickers Rich, as well as some others, described the first identifiable dinosaurs found in Saudi Arabia. So Kier was also on the polar dinosaurs feathers paper, which is why I mentioned him here, as well as obviously Tom and Pat, (laughs) who've done like a majority of the work done in Australian paleontology, at least in Victoria, for sure. This first discovery in Saudi Arabia was published just seven years ago, and it was really easy to verify since the title of the paper is literally, quote, first dinosaurs from Saudi Arabia, end quote.
1: That's a good title. (laughs) Tells you exactly what to expect.
0: Yeah, I just stumbled on it when I was looking for some other stuff and I was like, oh, this would be a good fun fact. (laughs) It's in PLOS One, which makes it open access so you can see these very first described dinosaur material from Saudi Arabia. The way they put it is that it's the first identifiable dinosaurs because there's other stuff that might be dinosaur material but it's just so weathered that you can't really tell for sure even if it is a dinosaur and if it is a dinosaur what even broad group it might fit in but this paper included several identifiable fragments including titanosaur tail vertebrae and probable allosaurid teeth and they all come from the Adapha formation which is from about 75 million years ago and at the time it would have been very close to the equator and still connected to Africa. So we expect that the Saudi Arabia ecosystem and dinosaurs would have been pretty similar to what we find in the rest of northern Africa. Maybe not southern Africa, because we've talked before about how some of them are pretty different in southern Africa versus northern Africa. But if we can find more dinosaurs in Saudi Arabia, it can really help us fill out some of this gondwana details that we've been missing.
1: Can never have too many dinosaurs.
0: Yeah. I think Tom referred to Saudi Arabia as tantalizing mm. <laughs> in one interview.
1: Well, hopefully we get more paleontology in that area in the nearish future. That'd be great. And that wraps up our first regular episode of twenty twenty. I say regular because our first episode of twenty twenty was a best of twenty nineteen episode. <laughs> True. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. And don't forget to join our growing community, patreon.com slash InoDino. Thanks again, and until next time.